Um, If you would join me, we are going to read Luke 24, verse 1 through 12. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in, but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? asked the men. He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, It is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and rise on the third day. And they remembered his words. Returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them were telling the apostles these things. But these words seemed like nonsense to them, and they did not believe the women. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. When he stooped to look in, he saw only the linen cloths. So he went away amazed at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Andrea. I'm going to say this now instead of just doing it kind of later on. Um, Because of where we are in the story dealing with the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, as we look at how all of this fits into God's plan and God's story and God's purpose, we are going to be taking communion in somewhere in the middle of my message. And so we'd just love to remind you if you did not get a chance Why don't we do that now? Why don't we just take a moment, make sure that we all have our communion so that we don't get up. Yeah, it's okay. You can get up and get it. Um, uh, I just want to make sure that it's uh, that, that we're not interrupted. I'll I'll even use this as a little bit of a of a precursor. You know, I liked what Rachel said, which was, I don't know if this is for you. Um, Or sorry, I know this is for you. You might wonder if it is. You might be kind of confused about whether or not it is. But I promise if you are a woman and you can hear me, this is for you. I will say the same thing about this message. This message is for you. Uh, This series is actually designed for you, for us. That we could come in, and, and sometimes when we look at a particular Bible story or maybe even the collection, we wonder, like, is that for me? Is the Bible for me? Is the word of God for me? You know, I know that that's working for you, but scripturally speaking, the Bible comes to us as God's word, recognizing that it is in fact for all of us. It is God's word to us to make known things that we could not have figured out on our own. Therefore, unlike how it is sometimes preached as stories which resemble very important truths that can help you with your life. Um, There are rules that God has designed, and if you follow these particular rules, your life will do better. There are clear um, uh, statements that God has made, and it is therefore appropriate or responsible for you to follow along and do it. Or God is a holy God. God is a righteous God, and therefore you should live in accordance with that. What we want to do in this series, as it nears to a close, is to recognize that all of these stories actually have something very closely connected together, which is they are the revelation of God's plan and God's purpose through himself, and particularly through himself, his only son, Jesus of Nazareth. 
And, and therefore, these stories are not loosely connected, but they are intimately connected. That they draw upon God's awareness of what is going on in the world, that which he created, that which rebelled against him, that which needed to be reminded repeatedly throughout the scriptures of their brokenness and God's kindness. God's patience. God's willingness to love and to forgive. God's graciousness. To to think that for thousands of years, the Lord waited patiently and kindly, constantly speaking the truth and warning of what it will mean when you meet him and you live in rebellion against him, and then promising, but but should you choose to repent, should you choose to acknowledge the reality of, of me, this is God speaking, and the reality of you, And then in light of my plan, that those two come back together. This is the story of God. Who he is, who we are, the amazing difference between the two, and the reuniting of the two. And that can't happen in a garden. And and there's no patriarch, there's no father of the faith that can be faithful enough to rescue all humanity. This, this, is, this is almost like mind-blowing for me. That there is no law that can come, even from God himself. And hear me, this is not a limit of his. This is who he is by his nature. That there is no law that can rescue us. For only he can rescue us. It is not a failure of the law. It shows the triumphant nature of God alone. There is no king that can rescue you. And there is no place of worship on this earth that can somehow provide both being sanctified and being made right. There is no safety that we can find in a location for it is how we stand before him, him that ultimately matters. And that is why the prophets come and they speak about a day in which a heart is going to be remade and it won't be a heart um, that will constantly be broken, but there is something that is powerful. A new covenant is promised and, 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 and there is a new, not only a, the judgment that happened to Israel, but the promise of restoration that we see in the prophets that speak of that great and wonderful day when Jesus Christ would come. And now all of a sudden, what Drew talked about last week was this yes to all of the promises that God had made. Perfect Bible verse. Yes, 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 yes in me. The answer is yes. I saw a billboard in Oklahoma City last week. Andrew and I were driving down to Oklahoma City. I saw this billboard. It actually said, I was describing Jesus, and it said, is Jesus... The only way to God. And then there was a telephone number I think you're supposed to call. Um, I already knew the answer to the question, but it really struck me. Is Jesus the only way to God? I don't know how many times I've seen that sign. But Jesus is God. You see the fundamental difference that we have 
How about Jesus? Is God the only way to God? Well, yeah. Thank you, Captain Obvious. Is God the only way to God? Mm -hmm. Therefore, Jesus does not come as one more. Jesus comes as the one. And that's a fundamental difference. And so what we find in Jesus is God himself to rescue. And, and, and so this is a question that I've been asking now for a couple of weeks, knowing I was preaching this message. What's your favorite story in the life of Jesus? And I've had a number of people tell me what they are, and, 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 and I can almost guess which ones, and I know which one is mine. And, and it's so many of them are, oh, and he touched a leper because I think about Jesus' compassion. Or, oh, I just love when he stood on the Sermon on the Mount and he just pontificated, I mean that in a nice way, pontificated on these wonderful deep truths. And man, that just really resonated with me. Or man, when he stood in front of the, the Pharisees and he kind of just spoke that, that tough truth. Man, I absolutely love that one. I, I still have not had anyone, had anyone say to me, oh, when he died, and I thought that fascinating. And by the way, it's not the one I would first go to either. I hope it's because, and I mean this in a good way, we just kind of assume that this is the most important part of the story. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe, I guess, you know, even when I ask myself that question, I kind of gravitate towards the teachings of Jesus. Oh, I get that. Because you're a teacher? Kind of. I gravitate towards the compassion of Christ over those who are outsiders and marginalized. Oh, I get it. You have a real heart of compassion. But let us remember, it is none of the events between his, uh, even, the, even the proclamation that his birth would come right up until the final days of his life that all of those lead to the purpose, the reason why he came. And that is why Jesus made it very clear because he knew that they could be distracted by food and he knew they could be distracted by a healing. They understood, he understood this, that they could be distracted by the calming of a storm or even the the courage, the courage and the boldness to confront people that are wrong. And that's why he kept saying to his disciples over and over and over again, don't be distracted, for the Son of Man has come to give his life as a ransom. For the Son of Man has come, he will be handed over, he will be betrayed, he, he will be crucified, and he will die, and he will rise again. Which to me just seems... Like, what else could he mean by that? And every time you see this statement that Jesus makes about the centrality of his death and resurrection, almost every time the gospel writers say, and the disciples didn't understand what he meant by that. How many ways can you take he would be portrayed into the hands of, he would be crucified, he would die, and he would rise again? Have you wondered about that? How many different ways can you interpret that? It wasn't that they had a hard time understanding the words. They had no ability to get their head around, that's God's plan. 
that's God's plan? That's what he intended? This and this is the reason behind all of this? And the answer is yes. This is the beauty of having a, you know, one of our, one of our key discipleship principles here is this idea of biblical literacy. That one of the ways in which we understand who we are in God, and we even understand our identity, which is the number one of our other core pillars, that we know who we are, our identity um, as image bearers of God, as redeemed image bearers of God, as men and women and husbands and wives, and we understand our identity is that we get that from the Bible. And so we should know the Bible. We should know the word of God. But many of us know who built the ark or who wrote Acts, And we fail to see probably the most important part of the narrative, which is the unity that we see in Scripture. And so this entire series is designed to help every single one of us see the oneness of Scripture. Why? So that you will be able to make sense of the most enjoyable and fulfilling moments in your life. Huh? Yeah. Have you had good things happen to you? Raise your hand if you've had something good happen in your life. Oh, good. Most of us. That's great. When we find those good moments, it's really easy for us to celebrate. It's really easy for us momentarily to thank the Lord. And then kind of find pleasure. And there's nothing wrong with finding pleasure in the good things of God. But it can be, if you have a lot of them, you quickly um, forget to give thanks to God. Truly, the Bible actually teaches that all these things that God has given us should be received with thanksgiving and should be given praise to him. But I do know the temptation of having a lot of good things happen. What begins with a thank God and I am so grateful and we should stop and pray. It's just assuming and forgetting to give thanks and to praise. That ever happened to you? It happens to me. How does that happen? You kind of get lulled into this, not that we deserve it, but it's come to be expected. Like when you leave Egypt and you're about to enter into the promised land, it's only upward from here, right? And this is why God sends prophets and warnings. It's why God's word constantly is reminding us that even in those great moments, even in those most enjoyable moments, I need you to know all of it. I need you to know where you've come from and I need you to know where you're going and I need you to be mindful of me. Be mindful of me. By the way, it is The unity of scripture that not only helps us understand how do we respond in the good times, but honestly, how do we respond in the bad times? It is scripture that reminds us, that helps us make sense of the most painful and disturbing moments in our lives. How do I make sense of pain and hardship, of of, of a death that came not at a time when it was expected at all? How do I understand relationships that are fractured beyond my ability to consider them to be restored? What do I do in moments like that? And the Bible makes it very, very clear. That is when we stop and we praise the Lord. Now, interestingly enough, I don't think what the Bible teaches is that we praise them for them in and of themselves. That's not what it is. 
It's not, God, I want to just thank you for the terrible things that have happened to me. It's, God, I want to thank you for giving me a life and for involving me in part of a story that is so much bigger than just good things happening to me. But I love the unity of Scripture in which it deals very honestly about life. And so I know what to do in good times. And by the grace of God, And for the purposes and the glory of God, I know how to respond in difficult times. For I'm not the first one to face adversity. I'm not the first one to try to figure out how did we get here and where are we going? Why? Because I understand that I, like Abraham or Moses or David or Jeremiah, am a part of a bigger story. And so I know how to be grateful for the wonderful things that are happening in my life. And I know how to be grateful to God, grateful for God in the most disturbing and trying times. And I don't think we get a picture, a better picture of that. I mean, we we cannot get a a better picture of that than Jesus, who literally is this incredible portrait of all of that which is good and wonderful and redeeming and redemptive in the midst of not just good times, but difficult times. That Jesus helps us make sense of it all. And what aspect of Jesus' life? Sure, all of it. But most specifically, Everything comes to a head. Truly, the Bible's most important part, the most important part of the story. Yes, we need a foundation. Yes, we need to see the different ways in which God is gonna work things out. But he's working them out through this. And I think it's even good to realize that um, sometimes we like to divide it up and I don't think scripture does. And so as we talk this morning about what Andrea read, Let us see the cross, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus as an event, as one event, not as four separate events, but as one unifying answer to the rest of Scripture and to the rest of our lives. The the Bible, literally, if you kind of draw a line here, one of the reasons why we have so much Old Testament and then a shorter amount New Testament is the fact that 79% of our scripture is Old Testament. Almost 80% is the Old Testament. And this lays a foundation. But it's this. The life and the purpose and the ministry, the promise of Christ that makes all sense and brings all meaning through his betrayal, through the cross, through the burial, through the resurrection, and the ultimate ascension of Jesus. That is when we see him at his best. That is when we recognize what is God doing in the world. We look at the cross, And we look at how things have moved from there. That is why going back and looking at our text this morning, Luke chapter 24, verses five through seven. The women go to the tomb, and in verse five, here is the exchange. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Asked the men. 
Why are you looking for the living among the dead? There is a sense, by the way, in which, didn't you know this? Like, did you not know? Now, it's easy for us to go, well, how would they know? This hasn't happened before. True. But you have to admit that that kind of language leads to, how did you not know? It's not blaming them. But it is highlighting, Jesus did make it clear. Jesus didn't just kind of come up with an alternative plan. Jesus didn't get backed into a cross. Jesus wasn't manipulated to go to a cross. Why are you doing this? Why are you acting like this? Isn't it clear that what Jesus said, and now by the way, all the disciples and the women could say, no, it was not clear to us. But it was clear. And what helped it make sense? Interestingly enough, what helped it all make sense was the cross, was the burial, was the resurrection, and will be the ascension. That is what brought clarity. So notice how it continues. They, they men say in verse six, he is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, it is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and rise on the third day. And now all of a sudden, they have the same information that they've heard repeatedly before. But now, at looking at the empty tomb, oh, what we see in the most important part of the story is one of those aha moments for everything else. For everything else. So therefore, what we see in that moment in which Jesus Christ, and when we reflect upon the cross, and we reflect upon the resurrection, and we reflect upon God's redemptive purposes, that is when we have that very, very powerful aha moment. It is the bringing together of the cross and the tomb and the resurrection and the ascension event. It is through that that we make sense of, 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 of the condemnation of the snake in the garden. We have make sense of what God's plan and purposes ultimately are through sending his son it is that aha moment that then leads us to understand what is going on in our own lives and recognizing the ability to give thanks for God in the good things and to give thanks for the existence of God in the difficult ones. It's an aha moment. I want us right now to partake together of this. I'm going to continue to expound upon the goodness and the greatness of God and, and what the, particularly the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ is. And I really thought, maybe I should do this at the end, you know? Like when, we, when you perfectly understand all of what the resurrection is all about, all of what the cross is all about. You know, at the end of my message, when everything comes together, because I will have explained it perfectly. And then I realized, no. No, I want to take it now. I want to take it now, like almost in the middle. Why? So that you and I can kind of engage God in such a way that we can recognize we're not here to just come to an understanding. We're here to give thanks. That we know enough to say, aha, God, I understand what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. And yet, to realize there is so much more that I need to 
know and experience. That God, I, I find my pleasure and my joy in trusting and believing your whole story and how I fit into it. And, and I'm not just trying to get to the end of this, but I'm trying to experience you through it all. That is what the Lord's Supper is all about, is giving thanks for the coming of God, recognizing that we need him and we know why, but we do not know fully why. Recognizing that God is going to do something profound in your life, and I would say you do not fully understand or appreciate all that he is going to do in your life, and that is why we partake of it Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Have you had an aha moment? With the Lord? Yeah. And have you had one after that? And one after that? Oh, the goodness of God. Jesus Christ said to the disciples on the night that he was betrayed, you don't fully understand what I'm doing, but this bread represents my body that was given for you. And he broke off a piece and he gave it to them, each of them. And he said, take it. You don't fully understand or appreciate this, but it will be more made known to you. Take it and eat. And so we partake. And likewise, the cup. Take it and drink. So the meal is taken and it is delivered and the disciples, again, not fully understanding how Jesus becomes the answer to the Passover. And what's going to be unpacked over the next few days is them reliving and rethinking what happens in verse eight. And they remembered his words, and they remembered his words. In John's gospel, Jesus promised, you will remember. The Holy Spirit will remind you. And, and that is why it's important for us to find the centrality of the cross, tomb, resurrection, and ascension events of Jesus Christ to reflect back on in an act of worship, in an act of submission, in an act of realignment, so that you and I can be constantly engaging the goodness of God and the story of God as we live out our days on the earth. We see in the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ the perfect demonstration of God's power of God's power. Now, the kind of power that God describes could be described the kind of power that creates things or could be described the kind of power that came down on Mount Sinai or could be the kind of power that destroyed an entire nation, but that's not the kind of power that God tries to impress with. I would even say in a sense, I don't know how much God is in the impressing business because when you're God, who could you possibly impress that would matter? Think about it. You don't try to impress people that you don't care about. Who do you try to impress? So the Lord demonstrates his kindness and I, I think that's the reason why we see in the, in the cross of Jesus Christ the, the greatest demonstration of God's power and I wanna go, we're gonna look at some different verses as we look at this. 1 Corinthians chapter one. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and let us look at the kind of power that is being described. 
Because again, it is easy, us, easy for us to, be gravitate, to gravitate towards those acts of God in the past or even those acts of God in the ministry of Jesus where his power is so evident, raising Lazarus from the dead, feeding thousands of people, casting demons out. Now that's power, really. Hmm. Here's what the Apostle Paul says about power. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. To know God and to know the story of God is to know that he finds great pleasure, that God finds great purpose in confounding human wisdom, in confounding human arrogance, and doing so in such a way in which they have to admit only God could have thought it this way. Only God could have brought this about. For indeed, if you and I were to kind of retell, rewrite the story of Jesus Christ, this is what I would do. He would have marched in on that triumphal entry and he would have been victorious. He would have shown them who he was. He would have demonstrated who he was. He would have made them kneel and bow. And yet that would not have saved him. He had every right. Had every right. But it wasn't about his right. It was about the plans and the purpose of God. It was about the power of God which confounds the intelligent. It literally becomes, and this is why I want you to see this part of the story which is a constant theme within the story, is that God is here God demonstrates his hereness, his nearness to us. God demonstrates all of these things in ways that would catch us off guard because God is not trying to impress you. He is just demonstrating his love for you. And what you need is not to be proved to be wrong. What God proves is that you need him. And you need him to do things for you that you thought you could do for yourself. That is the power of God. You thought you could save yourself? You thought you could be good enough? You thought that you could fix this on your own? You thought you could redeem yourself? And the answer to all those questions is no, you cannot, but only I can. And therefore God comes and he demonstrates to us this need, this profound need for humility. Which is what? To accept. I need God to fix my relationship with him. It cannot come from me, but it has to come from him. The second thing that we see, interestingly enough, is the demonstration not just of his power, but of his love, of his love. Again, I understand why we might go to those compassionate moments in which Jesus Christ comes and he reaches out and touches and cares for and offers words of hope 
But in the end, it is not those words of hope. It is not that, that temporary healing, the touch of Jesus Christ that brings um, blood to stop in a woman's body or raises back Lazarus's life. It is not that kind of demonstration of God's love, but the demonstration of God's love at the cross. Paul again speaks in Romans chapter five, and here's what he says. Absolutely amazed at who God is and the purpose of all of this. Romans chapter five, verses six through 10, I recommend their verses that you underline in your Bible. It says this, for while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It's interesting he uses that statement, at the right time. What, what Paul is describing here is that it seemed like it took a long time, but at the right time, and in God's time, Christ died for the ungodly. Rarely will someone die for a just person, but for a good person, perhaps someone might dare to die. But God proves, God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then by the way, it doesn't end there. How much more then, since we now have been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through his death of his son, then how much more have we been reconciled will we be saved by his life? Do you see why it's important to see not just the death of Jesus, but also the resurrection, the new life that comes to him as a promise and a purpose of God's love for us? God demonstrates the fullness of his love. God demonstrates the honest awareness of our brokenness that you cannot fix yourself, you cannot redeem yourself, but to demonstrate that I don't love you just because you're lovable or just that you can do something for me, but I demonstrate a love for you that comes from outside of yourself. It comes from me. It is at that moment in which we find ourselves the most broken, the least helpful, the most helpless, that Jesus Christ steps into time and says, I have this. You may have heard us, I think we do a good job teaching this, but just in case you've not heard this, I think it's important that you know, and Paul does a great job of this explaining it in Romans chapter three, the demonstration of Christ's love at the cross is what saved all humanity, past, present, and future. Okay, what saved Abraham? Well, his faith did. No, incomplete. Show your work. Remember when your teacher would say, show your work? Show your work. The answer is, Abraham was saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. Read Romans three. How was Moses saved? Jesus. How were all the prophets saved? Jesus. How was David saved? Jesus. How was Mary saved? Jesus. Peter, Jesus. Paul, Jesus. Jim, Jesus, Darren, Jesus, Brady, Jesus, right? You know this. Do you know this? Gary, Jesus. Past, present, and future, God demonstrates his love that at the right time, he died for all of us while we were still sinners. The Hebrew writer says the blood of bulls and goats could never save us. For Jesus Christ had to come and die. That is the eternal demonstration of God's love for us. That is why this is the most important part of the story. And lastly, we see a demonstration of God's plan. All of this begins to make sense. All of Jesus' words, aha, 
through the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Here is God's plan, beginning in verse 16. From now on, then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. Even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we no longer know him in this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation that is in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and he has committed this message of reconciliation to us. For we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In the death, burial, and resurrection, you and I not only see an invitation for us to come and to be a part of, but we see an invitation for us to come and be a part of and invite others to come and be a part of. What we actually see is not just something that we receive, but something we extend. To demonstrate that God loved everyone, he gave of his life for them, and we should follow in his example. That now knowing the story of God, now making sense of the good and the bad of our lives, now seeing God's full love, now seeing God's full purpose, now seeing God's full timing. The ultimate implication is that God is worthy to be praised. God is worthy to be worshipped because he is, in fact, the creator, the redeemer, the restorer of all things. And therefore, to look at the cross and to look at the resurrection and then the ascension of Jesus Christ and to not see the way in which we will then be faithful witnesses to that story misses the point This story is not something to be passively received, although you need to receive it. And if you've not embraced it, you need to embrace it. But it is intended to be shared. Because even though it is the most important part of the story, it is not the end of the story. There are things that are still to come. And there's a plan and a purpose that needed this to happen in order for that to happen. And you and I now have an opportunity to recognize that in the power and in the love and in the purpose of God, we have found an invitation to be a part of that. And therefore, I think one of the first things and one of the most important things we can do as we think missionally about our lives is in fact to respond in worship. Giving thanks to God for what he has done and to just recognize that the life in which we demonstrate God's power and God's goodness over us is done by singing and by proclaiming the goodness that we've experienced in Jesus. So therefore, as a response to the meal that we have taken and as a response to the message that we have heard, in response to where we are in the story, let us stand and let us worship the fullness of our great God.